0: All right, well, grab a Bible, uh, open up to Hebrews chapter 10. And as you are turning there, I'm going to share with you a little bit about uh, an article I was reading recently where some psychologists were doing research, as they often do, and they concluded that the human brain tends to mispredict what will actually bring it happiness. And I'm not sure if you really needed research to figure that out, but they did, and that's what they found. They found that humans oftentimes wrongly assume what will bring us happiness. We oftentimes think that if we achieve or obtain a certain things in our life, then we will find happiness or then we will be fulfilled. It's kind of this if-then perspective, like if I get a new car, if I get a new job, if I get a new toy, then I'll be happy and fulfilled. And the reason that then when we get those things, that, that doesn't actually make us happy and fulfilled is because when, when our brain experiences success, it will then move the goalposts from what success looks like. The goalposts will be moved in our brain. So if we get a good job, now all of a sudden we're on the lookout for a better job. Uh, if we get a good house, now all of a sudden we're dreaming about, thinking about, planning for a better house or if maybe you already have kind of the best of the possessions that you can get, uh, now the work kicks in of trying to make those possessions last as long as possible, right? We want our possessions to now last forever. For example, uh, something people have been doing and getting more into is freeze-drying their pets. I'm not sure if anyone in here has been a part of that. Uh, it's okay if you have, all right? Uh, but, but for the reasonable price of a few thousand dollars, you can send your small pet in a cooler uh, to a shop in Pennsylvania where they use extremely cold temperatures and vacuum pressure to remove all the moisture from an animal's tissue to stop the decomposition process and leave the animal looking exactly as it did on the day it died. Freeze drying your pets. And so if you want your pet to last forever, you now have some options, right? I mean, you can, you can freeze dry them. And the owner of one of these shops was saying he was so surprised because he actually spends more time counseling people than, uh, than freeze drying their pets. Which does sort of make sense, because you can imagine the people that would be freeze-drying their pets, you would need some counseling along with that. And so that sort of makes sense. But, but no, no judgment if that is something you have done, all right? I think that would definitely fall in a category of Christian liberty, all right? Freeze-drying their pets. But the point is, my point, is that we are always looking for better possessions, and we are always longing for possessions that will last. We are. We are a people always looking for better possessions and always longing for possessions that last. And that desire, that longing, was meant to lead us to, in fact, find a better and abiding possession. And this morning, we are in the back half of another warning passage in the book of Hebrews. Last week, Pastor Gary, he preached the first part of the warning. It was a strong warning of God's coming judgment for those who have rejected Christ. But now our author is going to shift gears a little bit and come alongside that strong warning of judgment and provide some reassurance and encouragement for the true believers in the congregation. And so as we look at that this morning, what I'd propose to you is that as Christians, Many of us forget the better and the lasting possession that we have. And as a result, we don't live courageously by faith. But instead we live timid, cowardly, anxious lives, retreating from the mission that God has called us to. But church, now is no time to retreat. Now is no time to lose heart. And if we remember that we have a better and abiding possession, then we will courageously live by faith. If we remember we have a better and abiding possession, then we will courageously live by faith. So let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we look at his word. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And we ask Holy Spirit that you would give light to your word this morning. We ask that this would not fall upon deaf ears, God. We ask that we would receive your word well this morning. Lord, we ask for you to help me as I preach it and proclaim it, help it be clear. And Lord, we ask then for all of us that we would receive it well, that we would enjoy you, that we would learn more about you, that we would be stirred up to a love for you. So I ask that you would help me make much of you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews 10, verse 32. Here we go. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Let's stop there. We've just been warned of coming judgment in the verses preceding this. We've once again been exhorted to press on in the faith. And now our author is going to encourage the faith of the people by telling them to remember some things. Alright, if you want your faith to be strengthened, he's, he's going to call them to remember some things. But he notice he doesn't tell them to remember the good old days. I mean, that's how we like to encourage people, right? That's, that's what I like to have you call to mind. Like, we want to remember the good old days. I mean, remember you know, remember the days when Y2K was all we had to worry about. Right? Like our, most of our problems seemed so far away at that point. I mean, I mean, all we had to worry about was whether or not the computers could make the jump from 1999 to 2000. Right? We, we knew they had the, the power for Minesweeper and Solitaire, but we weren't sure if the calendar could make the jump. Right? Those were simpler times. <laughs> Remember the good old days. But no, he doesn't tell them to remember the good old days. He tells them to remember past times of suffering. Yeah. He tells them to remember past times of suffering. He tells them to remember when they had endured hard struggles and affliction. You see, what we know about this church, what we know about this body of believers receiving this letter is that they were in between times of serious persecution. They had persecution coming their way. They had more in the future, but they had already experienced some of it. They had already been through some hardships. It's likely that the original recipients of Hebrews were a group of Christians in and surrounding the city of Rome. And 10 to 15 years before they received this teaching, the Roman Emperor Claudius had expelled Jews and Jewish Christians from Rome. They had started to experience persecution. They had started to experience hardships, and then they were expelled. Now, the persecution hadn't yet reached to the the point where Christians were being martyred and killed for sport like it would be eventually, but already some persecution had started. And we know that the Jews and Jewish Christians had been expelled from Rome, and their houses and their businesses had been plundered and taken by their neighbors. I mean, can you imagine the crisis and the chaos of being expelled from your home and being expelled from your city. But we know that a crisis to us is not a crisis to God. And I remember we had missionary friends in Greece during the time of the Syrian refugee crisis. People were literally showing up on the shores of Greece, on their shores, needing to hear the good news of the gospel. People that before that time Christians couldn't easily always get to were now showing up on the doorsteps of Christian homes, needing to hear and experience the good news of the gospel. I'm not sure in God's eyes that was a crisis. That was the Great Commission being accomplished. And in fact, thinking through this this expulsion of some of the Jews and Christians in the city of Rome, the church in Corinth actually benefited from it. And a young up-and-coming preacher named Apollos benefited from it and could thank God for this crisis that happened in Rome because, uh, because what we learn is that God, through this, had sent Aquila and Priscilla to Corinth. In Acts 18, verse 2, uh, which we'll have up on the screen, speaking of when Paul arrives in Corinth, It says, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And so my point is that what had probably really seemed like a crisis to the Christians and the Jews in Rome, God was working in and using to not only plant and flourish a church in Corinth but to instruct Apollos and all these blessings were coming about this was not a crisis to God disciples get made churches get planted in the midst of a human crisis and so this group of believers they'd already experienced some hardships they'd already experienced some affliction and they're told to remember those days that they endured remember the days you endured that word endured in verse 32 is a word that is often used in reference to war. It means to stand one's ground, to remain on the battlefield. These believers had already experienced some testing of their faith, they'd been expelled from their homes, but in their faith, they had stood their ground. What else had they been exposed to? Well, they had been exposed to public reproach, meaning that their character had been slandered. Their reputations had been harmed. They had been publicly mocked for their beliefs. The media of that day had made it a sport to mock and make fun of Christians. Their faith had been ridiculed publicly. It had been put on display for all to see. Needless to say, they had experienced great affliction. And that word, affliction, describes not just a mild discomfort, but instead a great heavy pressure. It's a word that's trying to convey the idea of being squeezed, being placed under a great pressure, having weights stacked upon your chest, being crushed beneath that weight. The word affliction here is also translated to the English word tribulation many other times in the New Testament. And while it might at first seem odd to us that God's word would encourage them to remember and recall days of affliction, I mean, that that seems odd to us at first, right? We kind of like to forget those times. But you see, affliction is in fact one of the ways that God leads us to and reminds us of our better and abiding possession. Affliction is, in fact, one of the ways that God leads us to and reminds us of our better and abiding possession. In Sinclair Ferguson's book, Maturity, he suggests that affliction does three things in our life. Number one, he says it brings our spiritual needs to the surface. Number two, he says, affliction teaches us the ways of God. And number three, affliction shows us the faithfulness of God. And that's why the psalmist can say some of these things about affliction in Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, verse 67, he writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In verse 71, he writes, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We think we are maybe sometimes afflicted by God's justice or maybe his wrath or maybe by the enemy. No, no, no. It is in fact from his faithfulness that God's people are afflicted. God will take his people through seasons of affliction in order to bring our spiritual needs to the surface, in order to teach us his ways, and in order to show us his faithfulness. You see, because of the possessions we have, we think that we are really not that needy until a time of affliction comes. And then we realize just how spiritually poor and bankrupt we really are. And you see, because of all the access to biblical teaching and books and Bibles and all this stuff, it it, it, it seems to us that we know all of God's ways, right? Right? until a time of affliction comes and we realize just how much we don't know or understand of God. Martin Luther once said this, he said, I never knew the meaning of God's word until I came into affliction. I have always found it one of my best schoolmasters Get this, he says, affliction is the Christian's theologian. It teaches us lessons we would otherwise fail to learn. I mean, there are things I could teach you week after week that we could teach you day after day, biblical doctrines we could teach exhaustively to you, and yet there would still be some things about it that you would not learn until you experienced the great heavy weight of affliction, until your faith was tested. You see, our faith can be strengthened today by remembering God's faithfulness in the past, even in his faithfulness to allow affliction, maybe even especially in his faithfulness to allow affliction and therefore it is a healthy thing to remember past afflictions that you have been through and to prayerfully consider what god has taught you through those seasons and how he was faithful to you in those seasons and what idols or spiritual deficiencies were exposed and revealed to you in those seasons and so right now, just in the, in the quietness of your own heart, think and, and prayerfully contemplate what are some of the afflictions or hardships that you have experienced in your past. And we'll talk and we'll share more about these in our city groups this week. But it is a good and healthy thing to prayerfully remember your former days of affliction. Well, what about our kids? We've got a lot of kids in here. Kids, listen up. It's your time, all right? I mean, how, just think to yourself, kids, like how do you remember past times of affliction? I mean, I, I know most of the kids in here, y- you've had a, a pretty good life so far. Not much affliction, probably, for you. Uh, sitting through these sermons does not count as affliction, Okay? <laughs> Well, here would be my suggestion to you, for those of you that, that are very young and have not experienced some hardship in your life. I would encourage you to go read Christian biographies, to go read about your brothers and sisters in Christ who have experienced great afflictions. Go ask your parents to get you some good Christian biographies. We even have uh, one of our resources out in the lobby. It's, it's titled, Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ. Right, It's it's three short biographies. Go read God's word. Go read Hebrews 11 that we're jumping into next week and we're going to spend a month or two in Hebrews 11. Go read about some of those characters and and the ways that they endured and they, they persevered through afflictions. Listen to stories of your parents and other people in your city groups. And so that would be my recommendation to the kids in here who maybe don't have their own past hardships to think through. It would be healthy for you to go read about some of those afflictions of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the problem for me is that it still seems so difficult. It still seems so difficult to see our afflictions as God's faithfulness to us. And it will continue to seem difficult unless we truly believe that we have a better and lasting possession. Look at, look at verse 34. This is an unbelievable verse. Hebrews ten thirty four, For you had compassion on those in prison. Okay, just stop for a second, it would, especially in that time, prisoners were really reliant upon the church, okay? If you knew a brother or sister that got thrown into prison, they were not eating unless the church went and took them food, okay? But it was also dangerous to go visit them in prison because now all of a sudden you were getting associated with them, right? But still, Christians in the church were courageously doing it. They were taking care of brothers and sisters in prison. And look what else verse 34 says. It says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Which I don't know about you, but I'm not sure I know many Christians that would joyfully accept the plundering of their property. And here's what's so amazing about this verse, because that can only happen. This can only happen because of what is said next. In verse 34, this can only happen because of what is said next. God's word says, since you knew that you yourselves had a better and an abiding one, a better possession and an abiding one. If you remember, if you know, that you have a better and abiding possession, then that will empower you to be able to partner with and have compassion for those being persecuted and you yourselves being able to now joyfully accept the plundering of your property. Think about it this way. Let's say my boys are at home. They're building a Lego house Inside our actual house. Okay, so they're building a Lego house, and Joel, our two year old, comes through and just wipes it out. Which that's a fairly common occurrence in our house. (laughs) Joel just wipes it out. Now, listen, there might be some tears and disappointment at first because that Lego house was something they'd spent time on, they'd worked hard on, and it had been taken away from them, it had been destroyed. But what does the adult in the room know and remember? That they have a better house. (laughs) And a house that is actually going to last. Yes, it's sad to see that little house go, but, but, but you in fact have a better possession. You have one that no weak toddler could destroy despite them sometimes feeling like they're trying to remembering your better possession that you have is so freeing to us in regards to all these lesser possessions. But the question is, well, what is this better and abiding possession that we have? And I think Paul's letter to the Philippians, it helps shed some light on this. We'll have this passage up on the screen, but in Philippians, this is where Paul is writing uh, to the Philippians. He's telling them how if anyone should have confidence in what they possess and in it of their own strength, it's, it's Paul, right? I mean, he's had the best training. He's had the best education. He's been a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then Jesus shows up, reveals himself to him, tells Ananias, hey, this guy is going to have to suffer a bunch for my name. And now this Paul, who had every reason to boast in himself, has been brought to the place that you and I need to be brought to this morning. We need to be brought to the place where we really see who our better and abiding possession really is. And that's where Paul is at in Philippians 3, verse 8. And he writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. There's that language of union with Christ, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. O church, Jesus is your better possession. Nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing him and being found in him being united to him for every spiritual blessing that flows to you flows to you because you are in him you have been justified or declared right with god because you are in christ you have been adopted into god's family as a son or daughter because you are in christ you have been reconciled to God because you are in Christ. You have been sanctified, set apart, purified because you are in Christ. You can now endure sharing in his sufferings because you are in Christ. You have died to sin because you are in Christ and you have been raised to eternal life because you are In Christ. In Christ. I really I set you guys up for that one. I know I, I I could have taken it for myself, and I I led it to you. All right, let's try it again. And you have been raised to eternal life because you are in Christ. Amen. Christ is our better possession, and you are his, and he is yours. So much so that God's word tells us we are in him. And so what does this mean for us moving forward? Like if Christ is our better and abiding possession, how must we face future affliction, persecution, and hardships that are ahead of us? I mean, yes, we've kind of covered the importance of remembering the past ones, but what does this mean for how we go forward into the future? Look back at Hebrews 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance So in light of our better and abiding possession, how do we move forward? Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Do not shrink back. To shrink back means to be timid and to retreat. And this was the temptation of the original audience and for us as well, right? To turn back, to turn back to Judaism, to turn back to paganism, to turn back to moralism to go back to the temple and start making sacrifices instead of trusting Christ's sacrifice. But church, I plead with you this morning, do not turn back. Do not throw away your faith to avoid some of the upcoming afflictions and persecutions. It won't be worth it. You have a great reward coming. You have been offered salvation and eternal life with God through faith in Christ. Do not shrink back. Do not retreat. Judas shrank back. He had been exposed to the light of this world. He had been called, and yet he retreated. He abandoned his post. He did not endure. On the other hand, the reformer Hugh Latimer knew a thing or two about not shrinking back. A story is told of him when he served as a chaplain to King Henry VIII. And in one of Latimer's sermons, he offended King Henry. And so he was told in the week, the next week, that he was to apologize to King Henry before he preached his next sermon. And I know most of us aren't used to living in uh, monarchy or things like that, but when the king tells you to apologize, you apologize. And so on the following Sunday, he gets up to preach, and he starts by addressing himself in the third person, which is typically something I do not recommend to you. Uh, But he was one of the reformers, so we're going to give him a pass on this, all right? All right. And this is what he said. We'll have it up on the screen. Stick with some of the, the, uh, the language, the old-timey language, not the, uh, not like bad language, just, just the older language, all right? And he says this, right? Stands up to preach. The king has asked him to apologize before getting into his sermon. He says, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent? Even by the great and mighty God who is all present and who beholdeth all thy ways and who is able to cast thy soul into hell, therefore take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And then do you know what he did? He went on to preach the exact same sermon, but with more energy and gusto than he had the week before. (laughs) I would say in that moment, Hugh Latimer did not shrink back. He did not timidly retreat. And it did not get him any book deals or praise from the ruling class. If you know anything about Hugh Latimer, he eventually, he gets burned at the stake. Not, not actually by Henry for that, but by Queen Mary when she comes into power. Do not shrink Now, my desire for sharing that with you is to show you one small example of the courage required of Christians throughout the years. And it's important for us to know and to see and hear of some of these examples, both in our Bibles and in our history books, because we are coming out of a season where it has not required much courage to be a Christian. And we do live in a time and a culture where some who in the past had professed Christ when it seemed to be advantageous to do so, they are now shrinking back. But church, those who have Christ as their better and abiding possession, they don't shrink back. I mean, those who claimed Christ for a time, when they saw some advantages they thought He might bring them, they can easily shrink back when hardship or affliction comes. But we need to know of these courageous examples because courage will be required of every Christian in here this morning, men, women, and children. However, I hesitated to even share some of these a courageous story with you because I fear that sharing a story like that will get some of you so psyched up to go fight someone on Facebook or go have permission to be a jerk to someone or to start talking of yourself about yourself in the third person. And I'm not giving permission for any of those things. And so listen, we need to hear, please hear this pastoral exhortation to you this morning because I want you to properly direct your passion for battle. Your passion for battle is a good thing, but it is often misdirected. And I've heard this said by others, but I think we need to hear it again this morning. Do not confuse your mission field with your enemy. Do not Confuse your mission field With your enemy When Paul is gearing up the Ephesians for battle He reminds them And he gives them the imagery of putting on the armor of God And he says in Ephesians 6 verse 12 He says For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood But against the rulers Against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, if Christ is not your better and abiding possession, everything gets out of whack. Everything gets out of focus. If America is your better and abiding possession, and for those of you that don't know me, I love America. I really do. I'm grateful to live here. I pay taxes. I think we need to be good stewards of our American citizenship. But if America is your better and abiding possession, your focus will be so out of whack that I don't think you'll be able to see who your ultimate enemy really is. If America is your better and abiding possession, people that sit across the political aisle from you start to look like the enemy. And listen, our real enemy would love for you to think that. But if Christ is your better and abiding possession, now you can see America as your mission field. And you can see Satan and his evil spiritual forces as the real enemy and we know how to defeat our real enemy. Revelation 12, verse 11, it says, and they, speaking of the church, have conquered him, speaking of our real enemy, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. Your passion for battle is a good thing but know who our real enemy is and we overtake the gates of hell by preaching the gospel to to our nation and to the nations and calling them to repentance of sin and calling them to faith in Christ and then prayerfully watching the Holy Spirit apply the blood of of the Lamb to more and more people church, the blood of the Lamb the message of the cross is your conquering weapon And it is in the blood of the Lamb and the message of the cross that declares to us that we fight a defeated and disarmed enemy. Be encouraged, be emboldened. Do not get distracted with civilian pursuits. Preach the glory of the cross to the darkest parts of our city and to the darkest parts of our world and to the darkest parts of our hearts. Christ is your better and abiding possession. Do not shrink back. Know who your enemy is and who your mission field is. Do not shrink back, but instead live by faith. Live by faith. Hebrews 10, 37 and 38. These two verses are a combination of quotes from Isaiah and Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk, it was written just before Assyria fell and the Babylonians were raised up. God had used Assyria to discipline and afflict Israel, the northern kingdom. And now he was raising up the Babylonians to discipline and afflict Judah, the southern kingdom. And throughout all this, Habakkuk's main question is, how can God use a wicked nation like Babylon for his divine purposes? How can he do it? Same question I have every time I go to bed after watching the news, right? Right? How can God use wicked nations like Babylon for his divine purposes? A question that many of us ask. How in the world is God using this for his divine purposes? And so by our author quoting Habakkuk, we learn what the people of God do when the nations rage and when evil is still at work. And when afflictions are still a normal part of the Christian experience, and when courage is required, we learn from this quote that we do not shrink back and retreat, but instead we live by faith. We live by trusting in and depending upon and resting on Jesus, our better and abiding possession, who is the coming one who will come. The coming one will come. Verse 37, the coming one will come. We live by faith. And that verse, the righteous will live by faith, it's really going to catapult us into the rest of the book of Hebrews. And the rest of the verses to come in Hebrews 11. And so we're going to go into more detail that into that into the weeks to come. Is what does this really look like for the righteous to live by faith? But listen, if Jesus is not your better and abiding possession, you will be prone to retreat. If the coming one coming in verse 37 sounds more like bad news than good news to you, Jesus might not be your better and abiding possession. But can't you see how your longing for a better and abiding possession was meant to lead you to him? Can't you see how your past afflictions and hardships were showing you and revealing to you just how spiritually poor and needy you were and how abundantly rich and generous he is? Don't shrink back, dear church. Don't retreat. The coming one is coming. And if Christ is your treasured possession, You will endure. He wins the battle in the end. The coming one will come. The coming one will come. But there's going to be some pain and affliction for us along the way. C.S. Lewis, I'm going to close with this. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he describes this truth about the coming one coming and there being afflictions and pain along the way, he describes this truth in such an illustrative and imaginative way as only, as only C.S. Lewis can. And he says, imagine that you're living in a house and God comes in to rebuild the house. Okay, some of you have done home renovations, right? You've had those things happen, all right? But let's say God comes in to rebuild the house. And at first, you understand what he's doing. Like, you, you knew there was a leaky faucet over there, and so he starts fixing that leaky faucet of lust that you knew was an issue. You knew, you knew it needed fixed up. Uh, you knew that there was some flooring of unforgiveness and bitterness that needed to be ripped out and replaced. And so God starts doing all that, and it makes sense at first because you knew there was some work that needed to be done. I mean, that's why you showed up to church in the first place. You knew there were a few things needed kind of tuned up and fixed up. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. And it doesn't seem to make sense anymore. And you think to yourself, what on earth is he doing? And Lewis then explains, you see that it is God. God is building quite a different house from the one you thought. He's throwing up a wing there, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. You see, when by grace through faith we receive Christ, he is not content to come live in one wing of our heart. He will not be one of the possessions we have. When Christ moves in, he takes ownership and he starts preparing us to dwell with him forever. And we are being prepared for that glorious end through enduring struggles with sufferings, through sometimes being exposed to reproach and affliction. But we can endure and not retreat and instead live by faith because we have a better and an abiding possession. We have Christ. And so I'd encourage you today as you go out from here to go prayerfully recall some of the past afflictions that you have been through and and, and prayerfully ask God to show you what spiritual needs were being brought to the surface. There are maybe some things there that you didn't even know were there that you still haven't learned yet. So ask the Lord to bring those to the surface. Ask God to show you what you learned about Him through that season of affliction. And then take the opportunity to praise Him for his faithfulness to you through that season. Maybe some of you, maybe some of you have gotten your mission field and your enemy mixed up. And maybe you need to confess that today. And we're going to have people up at the front that are ready to pray with you, whether it be to pray for you for this or for other things that you need prayer for. It's something we want to start doing at the end of each gathering. So if you need prayer, come up to the front. We will pray with you and for you. But I'd encourage, if you've gotten your mission field and enemy mixed up, let's confess that today. Let's press on in faith together. Or maybe in this time, prayerfully consider what areas are you tempted to to shrink back and retreat on instead of to press forward by faith. Oh, may you ask God to empower you to move forward by faith, trusting in, depending upon, and resting on Jesus, your better and abiding possession. Let's pray.